Hi, uh, a couple of weeks ago, well probably about a month or so back, uh, in the second talk we did uh, in the series on prayer that we're doing, uh, I spoke about a guy called Jacob and a rather odd story in which he has a fist fight with God. And uh, the point of the sermon generally was that uh, we need to have something of a fighter's spirit as Christians. We're called to fight the good fight. And probably uh, the place where this is most uh, relevant is in our prayer lives, actually. We, we must, as Christians, learn to be able to wrestle with God in prayer, to fight in prayer. And sometimes that means uh, praying as if you're trying to change God's very will, uh, coming towards him with your request for him to, to meet your needs, to establish the work of your hands in the, the words of Moses. Uh, but with a fighting spirit, and it takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes energy. And uh, so that was the, the message from a, a few weeks back. And at the end of that message, a friend came up to him at the end and, uh, and said that uh, he, he appreciated what had been said. Uh, and that actually, he'd employed this method of prayer himself in, in the past and, and generally. But particularly uh, in the period leading up to that uh, sermon, maybe the six months or year before, really wrestling with God over one particular issue, actually. And his experience was that he was just really tired. He just found the whole thing really exhausting. Actually, in that particular issue, uh, there hadn't been that much forward motion at that time, but wrestling, God, please hear my cry. And uh, over that time, it didn't seem like a lot was changing, and he was just tired. And uh, I said to him what, what I'd said in the sermon, uh, just briefly, which was that while wrestling with God, like passionately crying out for him to come and answer our prayers... Uh, is a mode of prayer that we need to know how to do. and We need to have that in our armory. It is not the only way to pray. Okay, we, we need to learn how to fight in prayer, but we also need to learn how to rest in prayer as well. Both things are important. And in a sense, today's talk is like the flip side of the Jacob talk. If you didn't hear the talk on Jacob, absolutely fine. You'll still be able to catch what's going on. It's on the website. You can go and pick up on it if you want to. But this is like the sister sermon to that, really. And today, what I'd like to do is talk about how in our lives, while we still need to be fighters, particularly in our prayer lives, we also need to learn to still and calm and quiet ourselves. And that's important in life in general. But our prayer lives play an important part in that as well. And I'll come uh, back to that towards the end. And so today, right at the start, I just want to say that if today you come to, come to this service and you are feeling tired, if, you, if you're feeling exhausted and worn out, like you've, you've fought a fight and you're just, you've got nothing left to give, if you've felt like you've ran a race and you've got no more uh, miles, uh, no more meters even left in you, if you're feeling disappointed that the things that the godly desires that God's put in you, you've, you've kind of prayed them out, you've lived them through, and you're saying, well, what's happening? If that's where you're at this morning, I want to speak directly to you today. And I, I think uh, there's, well, I don't just think, I know God's got some wisdom for you that can really help you. And that wisdom is found in Psalm 131. That's the passage that we're going to be looking at. And it's a prayer of King David. Okay, in this uh, series, what we're doing is we're going through uh, some of the heroes uh, of the faith uh, and we're seeing how they prayed. 
really very very simple and today we've landed on David which in a sense is kind of like a bit like the 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 plum (laughs) sermon to land on because we see more of David's prayer life in scripture than of anybody else's at all it's it's, uh, in in a way it's good in a way you have to work harder because you've got to choose which bit to go on which is uh time consuming but I'm not gonna I'm not a complainer it's all right okay um now for David you get um his actual life in some detail in one and two Samuel and one and two Chronicles but you, you also get about half the book of Psalms the book of Psalms it's a book of songs and prayers in the Bible and 74 out of the 150 uh, psalms in that book bear David's name. And uh, we've got to be clear, for most of these uh, songs or psalms, they would have been publicly uh, sung in corporate worship among God's people. And actually still are uh, many of these as we sing songs based on the psalms today. But even with that said, David's psalms, as well as the others, are on the whole, an incredibly raw, personal, intimate conversations with God. And uh, we're going to focus on this one on Psalm 131, but all the time I'm going to be linking them to others as well. This is not, we've not just got this one thing. We're not saying, how did David pray? Well, Psalm 131, and we've got this in the context of all the rest, his life and his other prayers, and we're going to be going uh, back and forth in that. But in all of this, we see a guy who's singing this song, who's, who's who's praying this prayer today, who learn how to balance this thing I talked about before, to be able to be a fighter, but also to be able to rest, to be able to run the race without getting burnt out, exhausted, depressed, or even worse, okay? So, Psalm 131, it's not a long one, but it is a great psalm. I'm going to read from the ESV translation here. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You see, it's not one of those like, we're not doing Psalm 119. It's not going to go on for ages and ages. It's a nice, concise psalm, three verses, but what three verses they are. I think we can get our heads around this psalm quite quickly and then let's just squeeze the juice out of it. That's what we're going to do uh, this morning. Now this psalm, to get this psalm, you've got to understand that it's built around a central image. And personally for me, I love pieces of the Bible like this where it's built around a visual picture because it's very easy to grasp in that way. And this image is found in uh, verse 2 and it's this image of a weaned child with its mother. Okay. Now to put that into... um, to modern day English, I guess we could say then that the central image is of a baby that has been crying. Okay, some of you would have recent, probably today, experience of this sort of stuff. We, most of you would know what that means. A baby crying, and that baby has become then stilled and composed and calmed and quieted by being fed by its mother. That's the, the image. It's a very simple image. I've put some pictures on the, the thing that'll be up there for the whole time, uh, which, will, which will probably work for you or not. <laughs> the case, look at the little guy. You say, I oh, look at that. So I'm not into cute pictures. That's so nice. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, so there is the central image. Now just notice a couple of things about this image. Uh, to use this, David, uh, to use this image shows that David is attaching no, uh, no blame to the baby. I know this would be hard for some of you to hear now, but a baby when it cries is not doing anything wrong. Necessarily, I can see a couple of smirks. I know at three in the morning it seems like it is, but no, a baby's screaming and crying. It's just a baby's way of communicating. Saying, Look, I, I, I need something here. And so there's no blame attached to the baby in this image. Uh, and I suppose the responsibility in this image then lies on the mother. And uh, mothers do find a way 
It's an amazing thing I've noticed with, with my wife, uh, as a parent myself, and obviously herself, um, that mothers do find ways to sort these things out. And you, you're there with the baby, screaming, crying, you've tried everything you can. And then Gemma comes on and goes, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. That's a wet nappy cry right there. Like, oh, I thought it was a, I want to watch in the night garden cry. No, it's not. And so the mother comes, and mothers have this way of doing this, of finding, oh, I've identified the cry, I know what the solution is. And that's the kind of feel of this image. There's no blame on the baby, it's just something that, that happens. There's something healthy about crying, actually we'll see. Uh, and the, but the mother finds a way to fix it. So therefore, how does David apply this image in the psalm? Who is the mother and who is the baby? Now, you might think, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Uh, we are the baby crying and God comes and he steals and quiets us. God, in this sense, is the mother. Now, I guess technically that's probably true. And as we do this whole talk, as we reflect back on it, you'll probably think, yeah, well, in a way that does work in how this uh, psalm is presented. But that's not actually what David says. David says something a little bit more complicated than that. Okay, look at verse uh, two, the end of verse two. It's like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. What's uh, the child, who's, who's the baby that's been screaming and crying is now settled? Well, it's David's soul. Well, who's the mother then? We see that at the beginning of the verse. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. David is the mother. His soul is the baby. He is quieting his soul and stilling his soul. It's an action that he does. He's taken initiative here and he has done an action to make this happen. And to understand this, uh, we don't need to spend very long on it, uh, but we do need to understand what he means by the soul. Okay? The Hebrew, uh, ancient Hebrew view of the soul is probably slightly different from how many of us in our culture might think of the soul. I mean, there's all sorts of ideas of the soul. Some people think of the soul like a little Casper the Friendly ghost part of you, the immaterial floaty bit that will float off uh, when you die or something like that. Okay? Some people think of the soul like that. Some people think of the soul as one part of the complex psychological or spiritual makeup of a human being. So you have your mind and your heart and maybe your spirit and your body and you have your soul and it's another bit. We're not sure what it does, but it's in there somewhere. Okay? Now, I guess there's flavors in both of them that probably aren't too wrong, but for Old Testament Jews, actually, their way of talking of the soul was different to those. For, for, for David, your soul, talking about your soul, was really just another way of talking about your whole living being, the whole of you as a, as a kind of whole entity. Ancient Jews didn't see some bits of you as spiritual and some bits as physical. No, we are living souls. It's not that we necessarily have a soul. We are a soul. And so that means that your soul for David would have been a combination of all of the parts of you. So your intellect, your emotions, your spiritual sensitivities, your physical sensations and desires, the whole caboodle, okay, is uh, in the soul. And so really David's saying is, I have stilled and quieted myself is really what he's saying. We don't need to go into too much more about that. But there's this, I suppose the helpful thing here is it does include this idea of all of the other bits of us are included here. Okay, like our, our minds, our hearts and our bodies would all have been in David's mind where he said, I have stilled my soul. So I guess the next question we've got to ask then is, how are our souls, how are we like screaming babies <laughs> sometimes? Well, different parts of us uh, do act like uh, like that baby at different times. I'm going to choose those three. The heart, the mind, the heart, and the body. Okay, let's spend some time on those. How are our mind, heart, and body, um, collectively our soul, how are those things like uh, uh, the baby in this uh, psalm? Well, firstly, our minds then. 
the bits that think. I think our minds can scream and cry like a little baby very often. And when they do, they are crying for a specific thing. They're crying for answers. That's what our minds cry for. They, they cry through questions, not through wah, but more like why, how, really. It's through questions and it's crying for, the minds cry for answers. For all of us, we would want to work things out. We would want to understand the way the world is. I'm sure that's the case. As Christians, that desire doesn't go away. In fact, I think that desire in many people gets deeper and deeper because to come uh, to, to God and submit to God through Jesus is to say, actually, reality is so much bigger than what I thought before. It's not just physical matter. No, there's a whole other infinite realm out there that is really integral to what uh, reality, what life is. And actually, to believe in the God of the Bible is to believe in a God who beckons us to come and take a look. Come and consider. Come and think. The, the Word of God, the Bible that we get, is, is a book that encourages us to think. It's not just a, a book of pithy little statements like you'd find on the back of a, a, a kind of card at Hallmark or something like that. No, no. It encourages us to think. Jesus himself recognized this and not just said this was the case. He instructed us that we should use our minds in this way. Uh, when he said he was asked, what's the, what's the most important thing for a human being to do ever? What's the most important commandment, Jesus? He said this, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Many of us would know this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. I'm sure you'd have heard that before if you've been to church any number of times. Now just think about it. What Jesus is saying here is being a Christian doesn't just mean not switching off your brain when you come through the door. It means that intellectual engagement with God is necessary for us to fulfill the greatest commandment. That's a big thing. So in a sense then, you could say that the Bible encourages us to cry for answers. It encourages us for our minds to cry and scream in this sort of way. For answers to the intellectual problems of life, of philosophy, of theology, of how the Bible works. Okay. And David's statement in verse 1 must be understood in this context. Otherwise, we can get quite confused with this. In verse 1, he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Okay, this is not David's life mantra. Okay, this is not like, oh, I never think about anything. He's not that kind of person who thinks, oh, I'm just not going to bother with thinking. I'm just sitting here and being. No, no, that's, that's not what he's saying. This is not David's life mantra. This is a place where he's got himself to at that specific moment in time. It's the end of a process. He's done his crying. He's done his screaming. And at that point, he's still. He's going to do more crying and screaming in the future but he's found a way for stillness in the whole thing. And we know this because it's particularly odd. If you take it, that's just what David does. It's funny to read his other Psalms where he definitely does consider himself, concern himself with the great matters of life. Read his other Psalms, you'll see all over them. The problem of evil. Why do wicked people prosper? Problem of what is it to be a human? We're so frail. What is man that you're mindful of him? The, The issues to do with who God is. These are great matters. David does concern himself with these things. But at this moment... He stills himself so that he's found peace even in that mental crying. What we see in David is a life lived in balance. A life crying out for answers, which is good, but also a life that can be settled and quieted and content even when the answers are not fully revealed, which is also good. I'd imagine for some of you, uh, this point will seem a little bit more relevant 
than for others. I think some, some people, it depends a little bit how you're wired in this whole uh, one here. And uh, some of you will be quite happy to sit back and not ask too many questions. That's not how you work. You may be questioning a lot at the beginning, think, okay, I've thought a lot about this thing, but now you know what I mean. I'm, okay, I'm with this now. I'm just going to go with what, what I'm told in many ways. And uh, you know what? In a sense, uh, that can be fine. I suppose it's a personality thing, uh, the way our different minds work. You know, some people are more practical, some people are more academic in that way. Uh, I, I would say to you in that case, uh, you do need to wa- find a way to work out Jesus' command to love the Lord with all your mind. I think the, the reason, I'm not going to talk too much on this, the reason I think would be particularly in our day and age, uh, you know what, we have stuff bombarded to us all the time, which is trying to get in under our mind. It's, you go on, uh, look on the internet, uh, on social media and stuff, they're never really going for your mind, they're going for your emotions. Oh yeah, I... I w- my theology then is the tendency is to base it on emotional responses to that that Facebook meme or that really really passionate blog post I read. Okay, we've got to train our minds to be in line with Scripture and to ask good questions to engage intellectually with our faith. Or you know what, you'll be led up the garden path, left, right, and centre. I think that's more the case now than probably has ever been. Okay, but I do recognise some. This will resonate less than others. I do, do see that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. For others, though, uh, you won't need, you'll be completely the opposite. You won't need me to tell you, engage with your faith, with your brain. <laughs> you won't be able to stop engaging with questions. Right now, your mind will be whirring with questions. Question, question, question. Because that's how your mind works. That's how some people's brains operate. And if that's you, I want to encourage you. God wants you to think. It's a good thing. He entices you to pursue him intellectually. He wants you to cry out for those answers. He doesn't want you to separate your intellectual life from your spiritual life. That's true. But you've also got to be aware of this. At times, he will give you the answers or help you find the answers. At other times, you will have to find a way to quiet yourself in intellectual dissatisfaction when there is no neat solution. Particularly when we're thinking about faith, we're thinking about God. There'll be times where the, the strands just don't come together. They're just left hanging. And we've got to know what it is to be able to quiet our crying minds at times like that. So that's the first thing, is our our minds uh, can cry out through questions. The second thing is our hearts can cry out through passions. I think really what our hearts cry for is for our desires to be fulfilled. We want our desires to be met. And again, desires are a good thing. They're a good thing. They can be for bad things, but desires on their own are a good thing. Some Eastern religions uh, teach that the perfect uh, state to get to is a state where you get rid of all desires. You just don't want anything anymore. And that's the goal of being a human, okay, just to be. Now, that, that's what it is, but that's not Christianity. Christianity doesn't go down that line. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches us. No, we should have desires. And in fact, when the Bible talks about desires, it doesn't just talk about mild desires. We're encouraged to have enthusiastic and energetic desires. Key words in the Bible are passion and zeal. Those are key words. And they're words that we're encouraged, all of us, to have. Not just in anything. We're we're called called to be passionate about a number of things, but mainly for one thing. There's one thing we're to be most passionate about, and it's the reputation and name of our God. That's the thing. And when it comes to that thing, we're called not to be moderate in our passions, but to be zealous in our passions. Jesus modeled this, and he didn't 
model it in moderation of any sort. He modeled it in red-hot zeal. And his disciples uh, commented very helpfully on it uh, when they saw it, and they saw it showing in his life where uh, he walked into the temple, preached on this a short while ago actually, um, and he took out a whip and he drove out the people in the temple, forcefully turned tables over. He went ballistic, okay? And the disciples, it says in John 2, 17, his disciples were thinking, mm, what does this remind me of? And it reminded them of a verse in the Bible. It says this, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. That seems dangerous thing to say. How could the son of God be consumed by something? Well, he was, and it was good. And we should be consumed with the zeal for God's house, for his name. Jesus was at times consumed by zeal. Probably the second most zealous, passionate person in the Bible to Jesus, though, is the writer of this psalm, is David. And his zeal and passion had exactly the same object as Jesus's, the glory and fame and reputation of God. It was David's passion for the reputation of God and of his people that led him to uh, initiate a one-on-one combat with the present super heavyweight champion of the world at that time, Goliath of Gath. That was for the glory of God. It was the the, the same passion that caused him as the king of his country to dance half-naked with all his might before all of the people as the ark of God was brought back to the temple. No, sorry, not back to the temple, but brought back to Jerusalem. It was the same passion and zeal that caused him to go to the prophet Nathan to initiate the building of God's temple. David knew what it was to be passionate, and like Jesus, his passion was good. And it's good for all of us as well. It's not a personality type thing here, definitely. It's not just for the extroverts. Paul commands the whole church in Rome, in Romans 12, 11. He says to them this, never be lacking in zeal. You need to hear that today, okay? Never be lacking in zeal. We've got to foster a passion for God's reputation, his name, and his glory. Now, with all that said, you might think what I'm about to say is slightly mean then in that regard. Because having encouraged you go, be passionate, it's really important. We've got to learn at the same time, though, that passion and zeal come at a cost. It's an incredible proverb. Proverb 14, verse 30, says this. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. It's nice, isn't it? Just encourage you, be passionate. Rot your bones, why don't you? What a great, great thing. Passion is rottenness to the bones. Now, some translations of that verse uh, translate passion like a negative passion, like jealousy or envy. But it seems, actually, the word is just a neutral. It's just for passion. And actually, that would be my experience. I think passion and zeal and deep longing for something, even when it's for a really good thing, can itself become a bad thing if it's not managed correctly. I think another proverb gives us a little more info on this one. Proverbs 13 verse 12, the writer says this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Put those two together and I think you can get a picture of what, uh, what's going on here because the basic problem is this when you're passionate and zealous about something and it happens fantastic, absolutely great all the birds sing, the sun shines brilliant, okay but when it doesn't happen, when you're left waiting when you're left kind of, but what now 
Well, that can lead to all sorts of problems, and it can lead to a genuine sickness of the heart, a rottenness of the bones. And this can show itself in all sorts of different ways. It can show itself in a very judgmental spirit to other people. So you're passionate for everyone in the city to become a Christian, and you see it's not happening. And so you could think, I'll tell you what, it's that church I'm in. The rest of them, they never do the right thing. You can be judgmental of others. If you're in a leadership position, it can lead you to becoming very driven of other people. It can be in the church, it can be in the home. For, for, for husbands here, lead their families. We kind of, oh, it's my wife's fault, it's my kid's fault. And we become driven in those cases. It can, maybe your, your uh, eyes can go in a different direction. And, and as you get frustrated, you turn them in on yourself and you become very hard on yourself, actually. You start to become guilty, ashamed, beat yourself up, drive yourself on more. It's the recipe for depression, despair, and a nervous breakdown. To think of happy things, but it's a reality. That's what it is. Listen, Christians are not called to be passive and reasonable about God's glory and his people. No, we're to be passionate, we're to be zealous. But we must also be able to still and quiet such passions, or they will damage us and those around us. It's very important. David was a man who learned how to manage his passions. This is the guy who invented the how long, O Lord, how long prayer. Okay, go to his other Psalms. There's three Psalms in which you see that that prayer. That how long, that kind of, I've put a lot into this, God. Where are you at the moment? He was the master of that prayer. He prayed that prayer. He also prayed other prayers where he called out, often very uncomfortably, against the enemies of God's people who were enemies of him for their demise and for God to vindicate him. He was very passionate in those sort of prayers as well. He could say those things, but he could also say, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Think back to the baby image before our last last point on this. Uh, before we start looking at the answer, because uh, the baby needed two things. It needed to be quieted from its crying, but it also needed to be stilled. As, the baby, as a baby cries, it kind of wriggles and squirms around and thrashes and moves its head, and someone punches you in the face, in, if my son's anything to go by. Anyway, um, that's another story. Um, for us too, I think we're similar. As, it, as our kind of hearts and our minds cry, it causes us often to, to uh, busy ourselves physically, to, to be, to, for for um, extra activity in that sort of sense. And there's a stillness we need to bring, not just to our mind and our hearts, but to our bodies as well. We need to be stilled from our busyness. So it's, it's about our bo- minds, our hearts, and our bodies. Now again, just very briefly, it's important to say it, I suppose, in case you don't get the wrong end of the stick. Busyness is not a bad thing. We are called as Christians to physical activity, and we're called to work hard for Jesus. Okay, We're called to work hard in developing spiritual disciplines, fight temptation, protect our relationships with the church, as well as actually working hard in our real paid employment. That is important as well. That's all over the Bible. However, again, while work is our default setting as human beings and as Christians, it is not to be our continual setting. While work is our default setting, it is not to be our continual setting. From the beginning of God's interactions with people, God's been very, very keen to impress this on us. The whole Sabbath thing, it's all over the Bible. God's very keen on that. Now, the seventh day, you rest. You rest, you don't do anything. This is so important for you. There's going to be all sorts of laws around this. And Jesus clarified, I didn't give you that law for me. I gave it for you. I gave it to help you because rest vital. 
the Old Testament as well, these seven festivals they had each year. Sometimes when we read about it, you think, oh, more religious things to do for the Jewish people, poor them. No, 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 those were holidays. They were rest built in regularly into the calendar for them. Now, you might think the, how we still our bodies and our minds and spirits, uh, minds and hearts seem slightly different things. Uh, but like the Jews in the Old Testament, it's important that we have a united view of us as people here. We need to see how all these things interact together. To be at rest internally, if we want to use that sort of language, David kind of does here, it will show itself in our routine and how we live our lives. If someone is at peace inside, they'll show that through a well-balanced life and how they rest and how they work. On the other side, if you learn to steal yourself from your physical work, it will help you be more peaceful in your mind and your heart. We're, we're, we're souls, we're together, we're, we're not disconnected in that way. And so I've set up how we can be like these screaming, writhing, dribbling babies. I didn't quite get to the dribbling bit, that's kind of an extra sermon maybe. But uh, I've said that, but the million dollar question obviously that, that stands above all this is, well then what do we do? How then do we quiet our minds and hearts and bodies? And there's just one very simple verse. It's a very simple phrase. It's a phrase that many of you will have heard many times before, but it's incredibly profound. It's found in this last verse, verse 3 here, when David writes this. What's the conclusion? How do you do this? Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. Okay, let's just quickly make sure we're all up to speed what this means. What does it mean to hope in someone? Well, I guess we'd use this phraseology, I suppose, for, for me. Uh, I'm hoping in Wayne Rooney to get us the Euros next year. And my hope's set in, in that man, or maybe someone else, possibly at the moment. But anyway, you, we, we, and whether your hope is in Wayne Rooney or not, you would understand what I mean by that statement, which is only said half really, by the way. I'm not cr- completely insane. Anyway, uh, it means when we say something like that, that we believe that that person who we hope in will be the one who can bring us what we want in the future. And whether our hope is justified or not has less to do with our hope than it has to do with the ability of said individual to carry our hopes. Okay. Now David is saying that there is an individual who can carry our hopes and it's God and we need to put our hope in him. To put your hope in God has two angles to it. It means to put your hope in God but it also means to take your hope away from other people you could put your hope in, even Wayne Rooney, okay? But in this ultimate way, I mean, and there's one person for each of us who normally we put our hope in, and it's ourselves. So the hope in God is to say, I'm no longer hoping, I'm no longer building my entire future about what I can do, I'm going to put that on God. It's in his hands, ultimately. You might come today as someone who's not a Christian, and with all this sort of stuff, thinking, okay, fair enough, I'm seeing around here, but just tell me, just tell me what Christianity is, would you, in this talk somewhere? Well, here's your bit, if that's what you're asking today, because in a sense, this short phrase, put your hope in the Lord, is what Christianity is. This is a summary of the whole of Christianity. The basic message of Christianity is this, that I cannot carry the burden of my hopes. It's the first assumption. I might be able to generate some good things through my cleverness, through my uh, physical work, through my enthusiasm. But actually, I won't be able to achieve anything that, that, that meets my deepest desires as a human being, just relying on myself. Okay? Just think about that for a second, uh, would you? Because I, I guess some people would think, well, maybe you've been a bit harsh on yourself, Johnny. I reckon you could achieve a lot. Well, I'm using I in the general sense. But let's think about that. What, what could we actually achieve on our own? 
I guess we could, if potentially for us, we could uh, do things that could get us an amount of money. Uh, if, if luck was on our side, we might say, that could get us a whole load of cars. We could, if we, things are really well, really nice house, holidays every year, possessions. We, can get, we could potentially get that sort of stuff, things, okay? But actually, those aren't really the things that we, ne- we need. Those aren't the things we're actually after when you reflect on it. Deep down, the stuff we can potentially get our hands on through our own skill and performance are not really the things we want. Because all those things are means to an end. It's the end that escapes us. We don't really want that car. We want to be noticed. We don't really want that job. We want to be significant. We don't really just want that family. We want to be loved. We don't really want things. We want joy. We want peace. We want forgiveness. That's how we're wired as people. And the fact is, while we're capable of earning the things that could contribute towards the things we really want, on our own, we will never get there. Hoping in ourselves will always leave us dissatisfied. But Christianity, while it asserts something along those lines, it says this, but there is one who we can put our hope in, one who can carry our hopes It's God himself. It's the one who made us. It's the one who knows us and how we work better than even we do. And on top of that, it's the one who offers us his love, offers us to work on our behalf. To be a Christian is just to say, I no longer put my hopes in me. I put them in God through Jesus Christ. And any of you guys who are a Christian, you would have done this before on at least one occasion. When you became a Christian, you would have done what David told Israel to do. You'd have put your hope in God. But we've got to recognize this, and this is really important in this passage. This is not a one-off thing you do once, and it's job done, I put my hope in God ages ago. No, no, this is something we need to keep on doing. This is something we need to train ourselves and learn to do regularly, daily. Why? Because this is how we quiet and still our souls. You see, to put your hope in God is to recognize that ultimately our success and the fulfillment of our dreams is not dependent on our activity, but on his activity. Very simple. Very simple statement. A statement that won't be new to many people here. But there's an almighty release in recognizing that, in dwelling on that, and coming back to that again and again. Your future does not depend first and foremost on you It depends first and foremost on God. Soak that in. All I want to do for the next couple of minutes is just say that in different ways because we've got to get that into our system so it's more than just a phrase we know about. Let's look at it in, in connection to those three different areas that I mentioned. In our intellectual lives, we should inquire. We should ask our questions. We should expect answers as we study God's word and more broadly as well. But we've got to settle for the fact that our hope is in one who is beyond us. One who is transcendent to us. One who is cleverer than us. One who invented our brains. One who we will never fully understand. In our thinking on issues to do with faith and God and the things we grapple with, you've got to recognize when you come to the God of the Bible, you've got to know when you start on that journey, you will come to a wall at some point. And on that will be written, no further. No further. That's how intellectual grappling with God goes. Not as a cop-out, not because, oh, because it doesn't make any sense. No, because we're trying to think about one who's beyond us. And we've got to be ready for that. Otherwise, we're going to come a cropper. 
Our hope's not in our ability to find the answers. Our hope's in that there is one on the other side of that wall who knows how it all is. And you know what? There will come a point, however brainy you are, where you say, it's on you, God. My hope's in you. I trust you. You can work this one out. When all the cords and threads don't quite come together, then my hope's in you. In our passions and zeal, we should long for God's glory. That means a whole load of different things. We should long for our friends and family to become Christians. We should long for our city to be changed. We should long for for the flow and momentum of of events that in our society to somehow be stopped and come back towards God uh, uh, rather than hurtling away from him. We should want all those things. We should be passionate about those things. But we've got to realize as well that actually our hope doesn't even rest in the fulfillment of those things. Our hope doesn't rest in revival or cultural influence or the size of our church. Now our hopes in the God who cares more about those things than any of us ever will and will glorify his name in a way that will get him the most glory. That's where our hope rests. In our hard work and effort, we should give ourselves in our spiritual disciplines, in our relationships, in our service at church, in our work, how we share our faith with our friends. But we must remember success in all of those areas does not rest first and foremost on our performance or perseverance. It rests on God. One of my favorite places of rest in Scripture is another psalm, not written by David this time, but it's a beautiful psalm. And it does this. It's just, it, it just is, it's fuel for rest. It's Psalm 127. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain, you rise early, you stay up late, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. Know this, the one who has all the resources, the one who has all the power, the one who can achieve anything and is moving things in a direction that is purely and totally good, knows two things. Firstly, if you're a Christian, he calls you his beloved. He loves you. Just rest there. Just in that one word, he loves you. But not just that. While you're stilled from your crying, like a baby in its mother's arm, doing absolutely nothing, he can just, at that moment, just give you all those things you work for. That seems to have years of praying, oh, I've just given to you while you're sleeping. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work, but you know what? That's the foundation we go from. And notice with a baby, the baby is not going to just some of you will know it's not like the first time oh the baby's cried it's a milk brilliant the baby will never cry again fantastic parented things easy no no the baby cries again of course it does the baby cries it's not bad the second time whatever time of the night it is it's okay for us as well if we can build our lives on this position of rest it gives us actually more confidence to be able to freely go yeah you know what I will cry for answers I will cry for passion I'm going to work my absolute hardest because I know at the basis of it all It's not on me. My hope's in God. Just one final thing to say as we finish. Just want to make this very practical. Just as I was preparing this, I realized for me, preparing this and in my conservatory early in the morning practicing this this morning, I thought, you know what? This is motivational. I like this stuff. This is working for me. But this talk is not for me in my conservatory at like seven o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Actually, this message is not actually for you in a church meeting today. 
This message is for the middle of next week. This message is for early December, when all your deadlines at work are due and your family are bothering you about what's going on at Christmas. This is a message for you when you've been praying and fasting for someone for weeks and weeks and weeks and you find out they're going backwards, not forwards. This is for you when you find out that what you've been taught about that biblical doctrine that put your mind at ease actually is not correct. It doesn't make any sense. How do we put our hope in God then? Right now, it's fine. We're in church. It's no problem. How do we put our hope in God then? You see, the problem is we forget this so easily. We've got to train ourselves by constantly coming back to this. This isn't a one-off hope, as I said before. This is something we need to build into our lives. I think from David, we see a wonderful practical example of this when we zoom out from his psalm. When this psalm here, we zoom out, we see, here's a guy who did this. He mastered this. He worked out how to do this. How? He just put your hope in God. He says, I've stilled and quieted my soul. There's a part of the story he's not given us there. How did you do it, David? How do you do this regularly? Look at his life. David, he was a fighter. He was a man of action. He was a great leader. But you know what? He had to wait for 15 years from his calling to be king, to becoming king of Judah. Another seven to becoming king of the whole of Israel. He knew it was to hide in caves with the whole army of the nation after just him. Later on in his uh, career, he was driven away from the palace by his own son. He had nothing he could do. It looked like everything had gone wrong. He knew what it was to, to act. He knew it was to be patient and to be still and to be quiet. He got this. He nailed this. He's a good example here. How did he do it? Remember the context. Remember what I said right at the start. David's the plum choice in this series. Why? Because we get more insight into his prayer life than anybody else. Almost half the Psalms are his. These songs, these, these prayers. What is it about David that balances his life? I wonder if it was his life of prayer, his life of worship. He was a man who knew how to fight. He was a man who knew how to sing. He was a man who knew how to run. He was a man who knew how to worship who knew how to pray. He clearly knew what it was to regularly pause and bring his worries and requests before God, but also to bring his worship towards God. And at those times, he was training himself to be still before the Lord. He was training himself to do this stuff. Listen, prayer is so much more than an allotted time set aside to spend time with God, whether it's in the morning, evening, whatever. It's so much more than that. But hear this, if for you, prayer is less than that, maybe a couple of thoughts, shut up to God every now and again in the busyness, you know what? I think you're going to struggle to still and quiet yourself before the Lord. When rubber really hits the road, uh, you've got to learn to this. It's something we continually train ourselves in. And I know it's hard, and I know for some of us, you'll have tried this many, many times, and for some of you, you'll have given up on this entirely. But I want to urge you again, Set aside regular time of rest and worship in your day. Literally being still and quiet before God, reasserting your hope in him, reminding yourself daily why he's such a good object of your hope. Thanking him for what he's done for you, recalling his faithfulness, thinking about his character, worshipping him for his goodness, for his kindness, for his power, for his sovereignty. Build it into your life. Why? To fulfill some Christian duty? Make you feel like you're a bit of a better Christian? No, not at all. We do it so that when our soul cries out, and it will, you've trained yourself in what it is to be still and quiet and put your hope in the Lord. Can we pray?